Good morning, uh, Providence Baptist Church. And uh, again, like uh, Pastor Blair said, thanks so much for your hospitality towards me and my family since March, uh, since we've been coming here. Uh, everything that um, Pastor Blair said is true. I was concerned that um, preaching on church planting would be a bit self-serving, but I have to confess, I, uh, I'm very grateful. I feel like I dodged a bullet by uh, not picking up the text that comes next, Shim's genealogy. So uh, it's a great favor to me, uh, this invitation. Thank you, and uh, thank you for leading us in, in song uh, today. I, uh, I love a good uh, pioneering story. David McCullough has a, a great book called The Pioneers, which talks about the people who left New England to settle the old Northwest, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, these places like this. And I think I like those kind of stories because I like to ask the question, why did something get somewhere, right? So how did, how did America get to the old Southwest, right? I'm, I, I find them in, incredibly interesting because um, I'm the kind of person that likes to think of myself as a pioneer, even though kind of honestly, I'm probably more of a pioneer. Um, but each of these stories, again, they, they answer a question that I often ask, which is, why is that this way? And, or how did that get there? Or why are these things connected? And here in Acts 16, 11 through 15, Paul and Luke are, are showing us, pulling back the curtain to answer a question which maybe you've not thought about, but I'm going to put it in front of you so that you'll ask it today. Why in the world did Philippi, a small Roman city compared to Corinth or Rome become one of his most important sending partners. Why did that happen? I'll be, to answer this question, I'll be, uh, I'll be zooming in, right, on this passage, right, to see how the gospel gets established in Philippi. And how does it get established in Philippi? Well, Paul preaches the gospel. Fairly ordinary in that regard, but um, first I'll be zooming out, right, to ask the question, what in the world are Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke doing in Philippi in the first place? Well, the answer to that question is a church sent them and God directed their path. So today we're asking the question essentially, in other words, is how did the gospel get established in Philippi? So if you're like me, though, um, I, in my Bible study, I really, I feel more comfortable in epistles because it's if, then, do, X, right? Um, so I hope today in our narrative to show us three scenes, not because Luke is a Baptist, but because there's three scenes which unfold in this passage by God's grace, I hope to show you. And if you're taking notes, it's these things. The first thing that I want you to see is that God is going to move us where we weren't planning to go to establish the gospel. He may move us where we weren't planning to go to establish the gospel. But then the second thing we're going to hopefully see by God's grace is that God meets our hearts with what we could never find on our own but desperately need. And then the third thing I hope that we'll see today is that uh, God will have us contribute our meager means to accomplish his extraordinary ends, the expanse of the gospel. And the question for us today is to decide in our hearts, are we willing to be sent wherever God wills in order to see his churches established. So let's pick the text up and see that God may move us where we weren't planning to go to establish the gospel. Verse 11 and 12 of Acts chapter 16 says, so setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, 
which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. If Matthew's gospel is one of fulfillment, Mark's of immediacy, John's of revelation, then Luke's gospel and his history is one of movement. Luke's gospel opens with movement from Galilee to Jerusalem, the center of Jewish consciousness. And then Luke takes us in his history from that center of Jewish consciousness, right, the cross, all the way to the Mediterranean consciousness in Rome. So we have movement from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to the ends of the world, right? In part one, that's happened. In part two, which is our passage today, we're seeing the gospel expand to the ends of the world. And Paul is a part of that expansion. He takes three missionary journeys, and our passage today is the halfway point between his second missionary journey, okay? And Paul's on a boat. Why in the world is Paul on a boat? It's a solid question to ask when you're reading a story like this. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to put Paul, right, in this story, to put this detail that they're sailing. Why? Two very important things have happened which put Paul on this boat, on this journey, on this voyage to Philippi. The first is the Jerusalem Council, okay? Paul had already traveled through the place that we know today as central Turkey on his first journey, preaching the gospel and establishing local congregations, He and Barnabas had been apparently so successful that there were people who, the text says, came down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's south, the reason it's come down is because Jerusalem is higher than Antioch. They came down from Jerusalem and began to trouble the brethren, saying, if you want to follow Christ, you have to follow the law of Moses. He and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem to see what the brethren there thought of the issue. And as a side note, Let's just consider this for a moment. Paul wasn't sent by the church in Jerusalem. It was the congregation at Antioch which had sent him out, right? They had recognized the call on on his life and had sent him out and had funded his journeys, and yet he sought Jerusalem's insight and partnership, and he wanted there to be a core between his ministry and that of Jerusalem. So they travel there, and this council meets, and after the council meets, they hear the testimony of what God has done, and they say, that's right, we're not going to trouble these brethren, and that's the passage that we saw read today. They send a letter, and they send Paul back out, and they say, visit all the churches, distribute this letter. Acts 15.22 also says that they sent some of their very best as well. They sent, quote, 22, leading men among the brothers, first to give Paul bona fides, right? Is what Paul's saying true? The second thing is to quell the dissension that might come about as a result of this unauthorized message and false gospel. The church in Jerusalem recognizes his partnership and says, we are going to go and we're going to send Paul with some of our best and to establish the kingdom. So that's the first reason. He's being sent back out to visit all the churches he had already planted, but then they're on a boat for a second reason because of what we call the Macedonian man. Paul chooses Silas, the text says, still back in Acts 15, to journey with him, and their plan is to go to the churches that they've already planted and encourage them, and then go from there north in Turkey, maybe up towards Istanbul, and plant more churches there. But they see a vision in the night where, Acts 16, 9, there's a man saying, 
Come over here and help us. So why is Paul in the boat? Because God wanted to establish the gospel in a place other than Paul planned to go. So the question for us is plans, right, subject to change. From this text, we don't get any real explanation of why God does this. Luke simply tells us they changed their plans because they sensed there was a need in Macedonia, which is the northern half of modern Greece. In other words, God is sending Paul to Europe. And certainly, Paul in his heart is living out two truisms from Proverbs, right? I just reflected on these I was studying. I was like, what a disrupting thing in his life. But just remember, Proverbs 16, 9, right, says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Perhaps Paul had these on his mind when they realized they'd have to change their plans. Paul knew who the Lord of his life was. So he, Silas, Luke, and Timothy had the attitude that their plans were always subject to change. And can I tell you something, just biographical real quick? I've actually been very unsuccessful in the opportunities that I've planned for, okay? Let me tell you, before Morgan and I moved to Louisville, uh, we had thought what I clinched was a great first full-time ministry. I'd been working as a, as a cook, a line cook, desperate to get into ministry, but doing construction jobs, all sorts of odd and things. Sensing God's call to mi- uh, ministry, we found what we thought was gonna be a great first ministry, right? Full-time family pastor job in Jasper, Alabama. Our plan was to settle down there, right? Be a student pastor there, maybe do online seminary and try to do a good work in Walker County. We even got out of our lease. Like, we are so sure we made plans. We left, we broke our lease in Auburn, which is a very difficult thing to do, I will tell you. And uh, got a phone call the Friday after my interview, and I was told, not a good cultural fit. Looking back, it makes total sense. I'm more of a necktie guy. They're more bolo tie people in Walker County. And uh, that's okay, right? But what I, what I learned in that experience, what I learned in that experience is that uh, my plans are subject to change. And my guess is that there's probably been a moment when you have made plans, but the Lord's moved you after you've realized, and after, after the fact you've realized that was the perfect move. And of course you have, because that's the life of a Christian, right? One of the greatest thrills of the Christian life is seeing not what I will, but thy will be done. I was thinking about this, this last time when I... It was probably this time last year when I confided to Phil Yates, who's somewhere out there, um, at Super Chicks on the Parkway, that I was feeling a call to really move forward and plant Redeemer. And uh, candidly, I had planned on graduating with my PhD in December and really coasting for a nice year. But the Lord may move us where we weren't planning to go so that he will see his gospel established. Next thing we'll see in this text is that God meets our hearts with what we could never find on our own but desperately need. You see, Paul's on a boat on a journey to Philippi for a particular reason. Look at me, verse 13 through 14. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed to be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to women who had come, to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to all that was said by Paul. With verse 13, we have our first scene change, travel itinerary, conversion. Who is this woman, Lydia? Where do you know why Paul's in Philippi? God has sent him a vision saying, go to Macedonia. So they've changed their plans and they're going to Philippi. Who is Lydia and why is she at a riverside prayer meeting? Philippi, this city here, is a really interesting city. It was the site of a major battle, and a lot of Roman soldiers settled here, and they named it after Philip, right? Alexander the Great's father. It was an established as a Roman colony along an ancient highway called the Via Ignatia, which connected the furthest east point of Greece, bisected the entire country to the western point. It made travel from Rome across the Adriatic, across Greece, across the Aegean, very simple. I mean, simple by those standards, okay? Colonia was a, was a piece of Roman heartland in the middle of Greece, and we know that because the inscriptions in the city of Philippi are overwhelmingly Latin and not Greek, which is really interesting. It tells us there were more Romans present than Greeks present. That meant there were Roman expats here. So with all the tastes, demands, and cultural expectations of Rome, with, I guess, all, without all the traffic maybe, I, I don't know, right? But it was in Philippi, here in just a few verses, that Paul is going to insist that he has to be treated according to his Roman citizenship, right? Lydia is here to sell purple dye because the Romans love purple dye. So that's why she's in Philippi. Lydia is from this city, Thyatira, which is a major exporter of this purple dye. There's a local route there that can be used to make this dye, and there was probably a sizable Jewish population in the city she's from. We've never found a synagogue there, but perhaps it was there that Lydia first heard that if she was going to be a God worshiper, if she felt a desire to seek after God, she could probably find a place of prayer by the riverside, but we can't know for sure. What we know is Philippi didn't have a synagogue, and so people who wanted to practice Jewish religion would have to go by the riverside to pray. Lydia, this woman here, was likely in a long-term mercantile mission to either maintain her trade route of purple dye, or maybe she had warehousing operations and she distributed her purple dye. Either way, what we know is that she was a woman of means, She's a woman means who's familiar with Philippi enough that she knows how to make her way to the riverside to pray. But more important than her work is her heart. Our text tells us that she was someone who worshiped God. She's a worshiper of God. Luke loves this word, okay? He loves this word that we translate worshiper of God, and he uses it throughout his writing to denote people who are pious towards the idea of God, but have never converted to follow God, right? So, so Gentiles who were attracted to, say, the theology and ethics of the Jewish people, but didn't want, to prosel didn't want to become proselytes. And they could have even demonstrated their piety by being contributors to the local synagogue, like Cornelius. 
So these are people who might have been attracted to the idea of God, maybe even given money to the local synagogue, but refused to actually convert. Key here is that she had never heard the gospel, repented of her sins, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are God worshipers among us, even today. As a quick statistic, nine people move to Huntsville every day. And for the last five years, more people who have moved to Huntsville have moved from unchurched or underchurched regions of our country than not. The Bible, the buckle of the Bible belt, right? If it's Nashville, we're pretty close, is, uh, is more looking like brush nickel now, okay? There are a lot of God worshipers in our life, perhaps, right? These people that Luke is going to talk about. And define a little bit more so we're not confused. These are not people who have repented and believed in God. They're people who like the idea of God, okay? They might be contributing even to the local church, but they're not followers of Christ. Today's God worshipers are attracted to the idea of Christianity, the worldview of Christianity, maybe even the traditions of Christianity. Man, these people may have even been like Cornelius and given tremendous amounts of money to local ministries in the city. They may live publicly ordered lives, but have been very successful in hiding and sequestering their respectable sins. Today, we might also call them nominal Christians. Can I suggest to you today that the, there might even be people here today who deep down are cornering off parts of their heart, holding a little bit back and saying, this area is subject to change, but not this area. The Bible knows no such thing as a Christ follower who deep down says, I want this corner for myself. I want this plan for myself. No, the Christian life, Christian heart says plans subject to change. Now, a brief word to the heart that might be troubled for a moment. Zach, I hope that's not me. That person is very little to fear because even if it's a flicker of a flame, the spark itself that has that concern is from the Holy Spirit. And if your concern is, well, am I doing enough? See Christ crucified, and we'll talk about our meager means in just a moment, okay? But Lydia is here at the riverside because she's seeking the truth. She's seeking the truth. She's not being convinced to become a Jewish proselyte, but she's seeking the truth. She was created to be one, just like Paul will say at the Areopagus in chapter 17, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind, including Lydia, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should what? Seek God and perhaps find their way towards him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. God is going to meet Lydia with his sovereign grace. God sent Paul to preach that Lydia would hear. Do you see in this text God's tender care for his elect? He rearranged four missionaries' entire travel itineraries to send them to a city, to a riverside prayer meeting, so that Lydia would hear the gospel. Gosh, man, that is incredible. I've just rolled that idea over in my head over and over and over this week that God rearranged Paul's plans so that Lydia would hear the gospel. And who was it ultimately that met Lydia's need? It wasn't Paul. It wasn't even his idea to get on the boat in the first place. No, 
Paul's a vessel sent by the great shepherd. Let me remind you of the words our brother Brandon read from Ezekiel 34, verse 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered. God sent Paul to Lydia so she would hear him. And she would hear him do something he would do over and over and over and over again, preach Christ crucified. That's something his opponents regularly said was too meager, too ordinary, and insufficient. But those meager means give God, not Paul, the glory for Lydia's heart being opened. So I I hope we'll see this last point that God is going to allow us to contribute our meager means to accomplish his extraordinary ends, that expanse of the gospel. Let me remind you again, verse 14, but also 15 now. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As was his custom, when he got to a city, he sought out a Jewish community to preach to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no synagogue in Philippi, so he goes to where he knows there will probably be a place of prayer. He goes to the riverside to preach Christ crucified. That this was their custom doesn't rob his action from any glory. And I I think, in fact, it amplifies the fact that God is pleased to work through very ordinary means of grace. Do you know how many times I've sat with people and their testimony is, I came to know the Lord because I had an incredible Sunday school teacher in the third grade. Or my parents were the ones who led me to Christ. What what does Paul contribute here? His meager contribution? Christ crucified. And when I say meager, I'm not trying to demote the glory of preaching Christ crucified. I'm simply trying to emphasize Paul is not an impressive person. He's not an impressive person. Luke tells us that Lydia heard and that it was the Lord who opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. Paul based the legitimacy of his ministry on his proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified. And all sorts of false apostles insisted that that was insufficient. Paul needed charisma, dynamism, a plan, but 1 Corinthians 1.27 reminds us God chose what is weak to shame the wise. Even here in our text, Paul, at the beginning, probably had what he thought was an awesome plan for rapid multiplication among the people in central Turkey. They were already Jewish. They probably already were predisposed to hear that Christ was the Messiah because their distance from Jerusalem. They were what missiologists would call ideal on the angle scale. It's a missiological scale, okay? Likelihood people will convert. But God in his sovereign grace, sends him to a Roman city where there isn't even a synagogue. Here to a prayer meeting by the river, and Paul opens his mouth and preaches Jesus. We don't know what he said, but we can make a lot of guesses because he basically said the same thing over and over and over again. He probably told Lydia, Lydia, you're seeking God to try to balance the scales in your own heart. And that shows you know you have a maker. Paul may have even told her that he made her heart to wander to that riverside. 
Maybe he made someone drag you here today. No matter, Lydia, how hard you even try to balance those scales, it's never good enough because even you trying to do good to balance is still selfish. That's why the Bible says that works are useless and no one is good. But Paul certainly also told Lydia that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for her so that she would receive the righteousness of God. And how light it must have made Lydia feel to hear that Christ paid it all. How light it must have made Lydia feel to hear that the good shepherd rearranged people's travel itinerary so that she would hear the gospel. And how light it must have made her feel to know that as someone who was seeking God and striving perhaps to seek God, she was the one who was sought by God. She was the one who had been found by the great shepherd. Ask yourself today, have you been found? Not have you, have you found God, but has God found you? And after all of that, our text says she paid attention. Was, that means that she applied it to her life. She took the mark of baptism, which means that she had not decided to become a Jewish proselyte, but she had become a follower of Christ. Now, because this is a proof text for our brothers in error, um, I'm conv- and I'm convinced baptism is administered only upon credible profession of faith, I can't miss an opportunity to dunk here. Double meaning on dunk. And her household as well doesn't mean that infants were sprinkled here at the riverside. First, the word for sprinkle is not in this text, but then second, no babies were immersed here in the river. And there are a couple of clues which indicate that to us. Lydia is on a trade mission. She's away from her household, which means she probably doesn't have children, right? Moreover, the word household here, and in Greek thought oikos, doesn't even mean nuclear family. It means anyone who is a connection, business, or familial to a head of household. Being a single woman, Lydia is probably being accompanied by an entourage, maybe servants, maybe associates who work with her, and these are her oikos, these are her household. These would be people who have also heard the gospel, repented, and believed because Paul contributed his meager ends, Christ crucified. What's Lydia's contribution? Hospitality extended. What does she do immediately? If you judge me faithful, come to my house. This turns, in a way, the ancient world upside down. Lydia being a person of real wealth in the ancient world, she would have been what's called a patron. Perhaps she even was a long-term supporter of Paul. And the rules for patrons were very serious. It's how the whole society stuck together. You show off to others so that those less fortunate than you pay or beg, excuse me, to be in your presence. Is the idea of we're benevolent, we're benefactors, we're making our name famous, but the idea is so that other people will want to be with you. But here, that's not her posture. Instead, she's the one who the Greek says, begs, come, please, stay at my house. Hospitality, brothers and sisters, is what she offers. Eventually, this house, verse 40 tells us, is going to be the home in which the church in Philippi meets. This church, Philippi, becomes one of Paul's most beloved congregations. They join with him in gospel partnership. Listen to what he writes later in Philippians 4, 15. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when you first heard, beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church 
entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. This sort of sending was commended by the apostles for the expanse of the gospel. Not everyone's called to be a pastor, but every Christian is called to participate in the sending of qualified people to places somewhere out there to establish congregations. Consider what John writes to the churches in Ephesus in 3 John verse 5 and 6. Beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. See, the gospel expands in Philippi because Lydia opens her home to Christian worship and teaching. But the gospel expands throughout the Mediterranean basis because the Philippians give sacrificially to send Paul, a church planted by a church, sending Paul to plant other churches. But these are meager. On their own, they don't accomplish anything. Ultimately, the Lord is doing something extraordinary as I close. We've talked a lot about Paul and Lydia, but I want to remind you in the first place who ultimately accomplished this work. Because who alone could open the hearts of any man or woman to hear? Who set the longing in Lydia's heart to find a place of prayer? Who rewrote a church planting team's itinerary and sent them somewhere else? Who inspired a congregation to send a man who just years prior had a warrant to persecute and prosecute Christians? I could say more, but how did the gospel get established in Philippi? God himself establishes the gospel in Philippi by opening Lydia's heart to hear the message which Paul is sent by churches in Antioch to preach. So our question is, who will ensure that the gospel continues to expand in this city and that healthy Bible-believing congregations are established in Huntsville and beyond? I pray, and I know Blair and your other pastors and your elders pray, that every one of you would look at where you're sitting right now, and you'd ask the question and say to the Lord, my plans are subject to change. Here I am, Lord Jesus, send me. Send me on this upcoming short-term trip to Asia. Send me to plant in East Limestone. Send me to reach the hearts created for eternity just down that hall. God will enlist some of your meager means to either send someone, accompany someone, or he will send you himself to accomplish his extraordinary ends, the expanse of the gospel and his glory. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we think about what we bring to the table, we admit not much except our sin. Oh, but Lord, you give us so much grace. Uh, Ephesians tells us that you ascended so that you would give gifts. You give pastors, prophets, evangelists, teachers, Lord, to build up the church. Why? So to grow up into full maturity, manhood, womanhood in Christ. Why? For your glory and your namesake. Oh, Lord, here we are. Send us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.